Hello and welcome to WexCast, the podcast series that delves into the multidisciplinary work of the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for the Wex. For our 2017 summer film series, The New Hollywood, Deep Cuts 1967-78, the Wex's film video curators have taken a dive into one of the most interesting and exciting times in mainstream movie making to find films they think you'll love if you only knew about them. In anticipation of the start of the 16 film series, which runs July 6th through August 24th, I spoke to director of film video David Philippi and associate film video curator Chris Stoltz about the era, the years-long process that brought the series together, and the movies they're most excited to share with audiences. Give a listen. This was a really interesting time in film, and we wanted to get together and talk to you today to get some more information about why um, this was a particularly uh, uh, unique and and exciting time in Hollywood history. And um, if you could start, uh, Dave, by giving us a little bit of a explanation of the era. Yeah. Um what what people refer to, or when people refer to the new Hollywood, um, for some people, it's a it's a time period, roughly the mid '60s to the very early 1980s. Um, but for other people, it's more um, you know individual films that fit into this concept of a new Hollywood, um, you know, and directors with more art, artistic freedom, directors leading um, the production of, of, of films instead of um, studios, as studios had traditionally done. And um, basically kind of what, what bookends the period um, is the, the demise of what we know as the, or what we call the studio system and then kind of the rise of um, a more blockbuster approach to production and and marketing and, and distribution and um, you know bef- before this new Hollywood period um, um, the, the the studio system basically started to, to come apart in the in the late 1940s um, it's hard to imagine but it, most people point to 1946 as the the time when movie attendance was at its highest. Something like 80 million people were going to the movies once a week, and that's compared to about 10 million people now. Um, the reason that the studio system collapsed um, is a, var- a variety of factors. Very simply, um, there was a Supreme Court decision called the Paramount decision where um, the studios were divorced from their theaters. Um, the um, at Obviously, the rise of television started to get people to stay at home instead of going out to the movies, and then other factors like the end of World War II, people were coming home, having families, and, and so on. And um, and eventually, the you know what had been this vertically integrated monopoly um, kind of fell apart, and things were very uncertain in Hollywood. Um, and then when you move into the 1960s, all over the world, you know, you have the French New Wave, the Czech New Wave, the Brit New Wave, the Japanese New Wave. There was this kind of different um, spirit of creativity um, around the world and you know different countries were influence, influencing each other and that certainly affected the types of films that, that were being um, made in America. Um, and then kind of on the other side of um, you know this period we think of as the new Hollywood um, when films like Jaws and then Star Wars and a little bit further on um, Raiders of the Lost Ark um, Hollywood 
started to adopt a more blockbuster mentality um, in that instead of letting a film like, let's say, The Godfather open and then kind of trickle across the country weeks and months um, later, um, Hollywood started to um, kind of front-end everything and try to... um, you know, focus all of its marketing and um, distribution efforts around one weekend. And um, it's kind of a very quick explanation, but it's, you know, the reason that we have superhero movies, for example, kind of dominating the box office like we do today is just is evolution at work. So it seems like times were pretty desperate for Hollywood and that actually, you know, created this environment that um, made it ripe for trying different things. And could you sort of, uh, Chris, maybe give us a little bit of example of like the transition from old to new in terms of the kind of movies coming out of Hollywood? Yeah, just even, you know, looking at the Oscars as an indication of what like Hollywood is thinking its quality product is. Like in the mid-60s, you've got um, Sound of Music, Hello, Dolly, and then you hit 1967, which is a, kind of a famous year and where a lot of people say New Hollywood started. So up for Best Picture, you have um, these new films like Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate that are really influenced by the French New Wave and other more international, exciting mo- movements. But then also at the same time, you have Dr. Doolittle, um, kind of this last gasp of this this dead studio system. And then fast forward a couple years later when um, Midnight Cowboy, a uh, very adult-focused X-rated film, is winning Best Picture. Um, so the tide changed pretty quickly once uh, this new energy started taking over the studio system. And... Easy Rider, um, really changing the landscape in terms of movies with low budgets, um, attracting a youth audience, and then spawning a whole um, industry. And then the interesting thing is a lot of the filmmakers who came up making those Roger Corman, post-Easy Rider-style movies then went on to become the movie brats who became the establishment and then started the blockbuster era, and uh, yeah, so that you had like that decade or so of really um, director-focused filmmaking too that came to a crashing halt with uh, Heaven's Gate in 1980. Um, just overblown extravagance that the studio then like eventually realized wasn't sustainable. So I think that. Basically, if you, unless you've been living under a rock for the past 50 years, you are familiar with a lot of the touchstones of the new Hollywood. Um, the, the graduate, as you mentioned, the Godfather, uh, another good example, Bonnie and Clyde. Um, but one of the things that's, I think, really interesting about uh, the series that you guys have put together for this summer is that these are movies that aren't as iconic, but they, you know, represent the same filmmakers, the same talent. And I was wondering, uh, Dave, if you could talk a little bit about how some of the movies in the series reflect this era. Well, uh, you kind of answered it. Um, they reflect the era in that, um, you know, they're, they're made by these, in many cases, very interesting filmmakers. Um, they're, they star some of the, the greatest um, actors of the uh, of the era um, so in that respect um, 
you know, they, they fit in with the era that way. But then also, um, you know, I think um, the way that most people think of, of the new Hollywood, um, like we've discussed, it, it does reflect kind of more adventurous filmmaking, more um, director-driven um, production and, and filmmaking. And, um, you know, I think another thing that kind of gets lost in the discussion, it, it's hard to imagine a film like, say, Chinatown or The Godfather even being made today. And, you know, it's not just that these artistic um, more artistically ambitious films were being made. It's that they were popular. You know, they were very popular at the box office. And the intended audience wasn't necessarily teenagers like it is now. It was grown-ups. And so the studios had to reflect that sensibility. And so I think in thinking about that, if you look at at not all, but most of the films that we've included in the series, they are, um, you know, films that were maybe um, based on a, on a well-known book or um, have these kind of Im- impeccable pedigrees from, from novel to screenwriter to, you know, everyone involved in the production. And um, it, it just so, it, I think, and, you know, we can talk about this a little bit, but, um, you know, we've been talking about doing this series for a number of years now, and and just for a variety of reasons, we haven't really done it. But we would always sit at our desks, and you know, maybe someone would be on IMDb or something, and we go, "Oh, this would be perfect if we ever do that series," you know. And and so I think we've just in our mind been kind of like assembling this list of films that if we ever did the series, we would want to include. And and um, and we finally um, pulled the trigger this this summer. Excellent. Well, tell me about some of the films that you're really excited to present this summer. Do you, Chris, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint because almost every film has something to recommend, but ones that I'm personally excited to see on a screen or share with an audience. Um, one night we're doing a, a double feature with... Um, a feature by Elaine May and Mike Nichols reuniting one of the great um, kind of subversive, smart, intellectual comedy teams of the 1960s. They each went on to be, um, you know, great filmmakers in their own right. Um, but Elaine May, her films are rarely revived. She's often just referred to as the maker of Ishtar, a notorious flop that's actually an interesting film, but we're showing her first movie, A New Leaf, that she starred in with um, Walter Matthau. And it's um, it's almost like a Bluebeard-type story where um, Walter Matthau is this rich playboy who realizes he's running out of money, so he wants to marry a rich woman and kill her. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just a really... Um, enjoyable inappropriate comedy that um is so representative of its time but yet ages very well um and is just rarely seen or shown um exactly what we were hoping to do with this series and another one that's been a long time personal favorite of mine is richard lester who's best known for doing films like uh, The Beatles' Hard Day Night or Help, um, The Knack. Um, He did this variation on a disaster movie, you know, one of the big genres of the early 70s, called Juggernaut. And I always refer to it as a disaster movie, but thinking about it earlier today, it's it's actually more of a suspense movie because they're trying to prevent a disaster. So it's... um, 
it's smart people in a high tense situation um, with lots of quips. It almost feels like a Howard Hawks um, film of people who are good at their job doing their jobs, but with lots of really witty, smart banter um, and just a cavalcade of 70s um, high to mid-level British stars in it from uh, Anthony Hopkins to Richard Harris, Omar Sharif. Um, It's just a good time at the movies. I'm looking forward to that one. Um, How about you, Dave? Uh, Are there any particular favorites that you have on here? Yeah, and just to, um, I think, finish up what Chris was saying about the Elaine May, Mike Nichols double feature, uh, Mike Nichols' The Fortune is really the film years ago that that got us thinking about this series. Um, I think there was an article in Vanity Fair about it, and we were just talking, and neither one of us had, I think we hadn't even heard of, of the film at the time, and um, we we're like, how could, you know, kind of two film people, um, how could there be this Mike Nichols film with Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty um, that, that we really don't know anything about? And um, we, we showed it as a secret cinema back then, but then that was really what kind of planted the seed years ago that we wanted to do this, this series someday. Um, as far as some films I'm looking forward to... Um, there's three films that I just happened to have seen um, over the last couple of years at this uh, um, archival film festival in Bologna called Il Cinema Ritrovato. And the three films are Reflections uh, in a Golden Eye, which is directed by John Huston, stars um, Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando. Um, the uh, Robert Aldrich film Emperor of the North with Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine and Keith Carradine, and then Frank Perry's The Swimmer, um, which stars um, um, Burt Lancaster. There's a little cameo by Joan Rivers and some other interesting cameos. But all three of them, just um, the, the tone of them is just so unusual compared to, and I th- I'd say even for the era, it's a little unusual, but um, especially today. And um, I'll just kind of focus on, on well, I'll focus on two, Re- Reflections in a Golden Eye. Um, it's basically... Um, Marlon Brando plays the commander of this military base. Um, Elizabeth Taylor is his um, very sexually frustrated wife. There's all kinds of, you know, kind of homoerotic undertones throughout um, the movie um, leading to her frustration. And just to see her kind of badgering him throughout the whole film is just an acting tour de force. And then kind of moving on to Frank Perry's The Swimmer, Again, it's just such an unusual movie. Burt Lancaster basically plays this um, upper um, middle class man who is at a, he's just at this um, neighbor's house and they're all having cocktails and he kind of announces um, that he's going to swim home. He's going to go through everyone's backyard on the way home and swim through everyone's pool, making their, making his way back home. And, And at each stop, something from his past kind of gets dredged up and you start to question, you know, is this happening? Is he imagining it? Is it his memory? You know, things like that. And it's just a really interesting um, uh, portrayal of, of that, that lifestyle, that um, masculinity during that era. And um, it's, I think people that haven't seen it will really be surprised by it. 
And another film I'm looking forward to is um, the very first film in the series, uh, Lead Belly, by uh, the great Gordon Parks. Um, when people think of Parks, they usually think of Shaft or um, his, his very critically acclaimed film, The Learning Tree. Um, but Lead Belly is a film that's it's really hard to see, and it's this great um, biopic of um, the great uh, blues guitarist and singer, um, uh, Huddy Ledbetter, obviously um, better known as Lead Belly. And if you love the blues, you, you have to see this movie. It's just filled with um, great music and so many um, great African-American character actors of, of the era. Um, Roger Mosley plays Lead Belly. Um, most people probably know him from Magnum P.I., um, the helicopter pilot. But um, people like Paul Benjamin, who is in many things, including... Um, um, Escape from Alcatraz, um, uh, Madge Sinclair, whom people might know as Eddie Murphy's mother in um, Coming to America, and, and on and on. It's just it's a it's a great um, cast of character actors, and I highly recommend that film. Okay, well, it's it seems like as you have already noted that. Um, uh, with the rise of the blockbuster, there was uh, uh, this kind of film just kind of fell by the wayside. It, I think you could argue that it was just too um, unpredictable and that uh, there's something about the blockbuster formula uh, that makes it a little easier for studio heads to rest their head at night. Um, but I'm also kind of curious, this spirit is still alive, obviously, um, and where um, do you see their filmmakers working within the system that sort of keep it alive, or are there any filmmakers that when you think about this era, you, you think of them as, as sort of carrying the torch for it? Well, I guess one thing I would say is I think it's it's changed exponentially, especially recently, like maybe five and ten years. You know, if you think back, you know, in the 80s, 90s, there were still films being made, and I'm just, just kind of off the top of my head, um, you know, films like Broadcast News or Moonstruck or um, The Accidental Tourist, um, you know, where... There used to be a time where a big movie had maybe a big director based on a well-known book with two big stars in it. It could still be, you know, for grown-ups and everything, but that was like a blockbuster. That strata of movie doesn't exist anymore. You know, like a movie with two big stars where the target audience is grown-ups. You know, that dynamic has completely changed. And I think, like, you know, you mentioned, there are certainly, you know, lots of independent films that, you know, a lot of the films that we've already mentioned would be independent films today they wouldn't be hollywood films um but then i think also with you know the rise of um kind of prestige television now hbo and all the great things are being made for you know um, for for cable i think a lot of that has moved into the television realm you know where people are doing incredibly ambitious television series that they could never get made in hollywood today yeah, I think, yeah, directly to that point, like something like Big Little Lies um, has roots in something like The Swimmer. Um, and they're both, again, like you had mentioned, like literary adaptations. And to your question, Melissa, um, you, you, you specifically said within the system. And I think that's the tricky part to answer. There's tons of independent filmmakers, but the first person to come to mind and it's it's because he's such an exception is is Paul Thomas Anderson who 
is kind of interesting in that he really fuses that like Kubrick style of perfection with, and then like has that rub up against a lot of the, uh, the messiness um, that is within a lot of these new Hollywood films. Like you said, the word unpredictable, and that's a good one. Um, it's almost like he inserts this hand grenade within these really locked down Kubrick environments, like a new Hollywood hand grenade to kind of um, add this friction to them. So I feel like he's one of the few people that feels like an heir who's advancing the new Hollywood style in new ways. There are certainly filmmakers that, you know, have the, the power to to get a film made along these lines. You know, as Chris mentioned, you know, Anderson is such an exception. So is someone like Martin Scorsese. Um, but even he has a hard time sometimes getting films made. But when he does, you know, like you could say The Wolf of Wall Street, for example, it was a, you know, a, a, a big film, um, you know, very much in the spirit of the new Hollywood. Um, but again, that's that's far and away the the exception not the not the rule and i think even people like um you know christopher nolan and um um the completely different filmmaker wes anderson you know they're 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 able to make the films that they want to make um nolan of course is making like these big blockbuster films but um i think there's something to be said too for just you know directors being able to make the film that that he or she wants to make and, and get it made. And um, unfortunately, it is, it is the exception, not, not the rule as it kind of was back during the new Hollywood. I think I'll just wrap up by saying one thing that I'm excited about with this series. Um, unlike a lot of larger series or retrospectives, there's such a range of styles and tones and every night's going to be completely different than any other night. Um, so there's there's a spectrum of filmmaking that was happening at that time that um, feels pretty rare and still feels exciting and unpredictable and fresh. You mentioned that you have been uh, thinking about this, doing this for a while, and every summer you do a themed uh, film series. So I uh, wondered why you chose to do this one this year. Um, well... You know, like I mentioned, you know, Chris and I have been talking about this for some time. And um, earlier, that's right, later last year, I happened to rewatch um, Cool Hand Luke. And I was looking at the director, Stuart Rosenberg, and just kind of looking at some of his films. And there was a film that I had never seen before called WUSA, which also starred Paul Newman. And I started reading about it. And in it, Paul Newman plays this itinerant radio host. He ends up at this southern right-wing radio station, and he suddenly finds himself um, kind of in this, um, amidst of this kind of conspiracy where this right-wing radio station is um, kind of the arm of this kind of covert right-wing political organization. And it just, like, seems so current. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, we have to show this film, and then that's kind of what got it. You know, we should do this the series this summer. And unfortunately, in trying to find WUSA, we could not track down a print at, you know, the, the rights are in question. Um, no archives had a decent print. It, it is available on DVD. Um, but it does speak to a lot of the films that we're showing in this series are on 35 millimeter because you know, they're, they're so back catalog, you know, there's such deep cuts to the studio that they haven't even really, you know, got around to, 
making DCPs of them or making good Blu-ray copies or, or sorry, putting them out on Blu-ray. And um, and this was another one of those films that, you know, here's Paul Newman plus the guy who made Cool Hand Luke and it's completely unavailable except on DVD. And a lot of the other films that we're showing in this series are, are the same way. They're not on home video or if they are, you know, maybe it's Amazon streaming, but the, the source material is not so hot and, and so on. So um, that was another, it's fun to have a, a challenge like that putting a series together, series together, where you have to do a little bit of legwork to to track down the prints. Well, I got to tell you guys, I am uh, personally particularly excited for Reflections in the Golden Eye. Following up on what you said, Dave, that is just one of the most beautiful cinematic oddities ever. Um, I think you were being generous by saying that uh, the homoerotic tones were under. Um, and uh, also, uh, it's been a long time since I've seen The Beguiled, and uh, particularly interested in that this year, uh, Don Siegel's film starring uh, Clint Eastwood in that um it's actually just been remade by Sofia Coppola. It's coming out next month, and by all accounts, the remake is very interesting. It's always fun to see the original before you see the new. She won Best Director at Canfort. And she won Best Director at Canfort, so there you go. And um, and also, A New Leaf. I have not seen that movie since it was a kid, and it would be... Um, it's going to be nice to return to the days when people like Elaine May and Walter Matthau were cast as romantic leads. So uh, having said that, guys, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, for those listening, uh, The New Hollywood Deep Cuts 1967 to 78 uh, runs at the Wexner Center Film Video Theater from July 6th through August 24th. And our debut film on Thursday, July 6th at 7 p.m. is Lead Belly, the uh, directorial uh, feature by Gordon Parks, a great photographer, also known as the man who directed Shaft. So if you'd like more information on Deep Cuts or any of our programming, all you got to do is go to wexarts.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>